Hi, you're listening to The Love Show with Patrick Hollick. Today we're exploring cancel culture. After the Times published their report, HBO dropped him from an upcoming special and removed him from its on-demand services. This story was always in my eyes about the abuse of power. One of the inspirations for the episode was one night I was on Twitter and I had seen this, uh, I don't even know if it was a real account, it was probably a fake account, and it was bashing Lori Laughlin's daughter. It said, uh, my grandchildren shop at Sephora and if you don't immediately pull all the products and all the representation away from her, I won't send my kids to your store anymore. And I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes goes by and I'm back on Twitter and I look and it says, uh, Dear so-and-so, we are taking immediate action and we are removing the relationship of Lori Laughlin's daughter. And I was like, this is crazy. Laughlin's daughter, Olivia Jade, reportedly now lashing out, blaming her parents for the bad PR. That and many, many of these things that are going on all day on social media were inspiring me to kind of dig deeper and to maybe reach out and ask people about the topic. On this episode, I spoke with two phenomenal writers. My name is Wei Huan Chen, and I'm arts and theater critic for the Houston Chronicle. My name is Stephanie Smith Strickland. I contribute to a lot of different publications. So I write for Billboard, Paper, I've done some stuff for Teen Vogue. So I'm kind of just, you know, all over the place. We hope you enjoy the show. Tell me a little bit about kind of your own experience uh, without getting into the article right now is just kind of like your experience with cancel culture. Okay, so I started my career 2011, 2012, and no one really wrote about race or gender. People did. People absolutely did and have been for decades and decades, but this was not a mainstream conversation, right? The mainstream conversation was like, oh, how good was that, you know, Coen Brothers movie? And it was kind of divorced of sociology and political thought and ideology, the way almost everything is infused with some kind of like political bent right now. Yes. So me being Asian or me having certain ideas of, I don't know, radical racial revolution or radical feminism or whatever. I mean, it, it, it just didn't apply to reviewing arts entertainment. It was like reviewing uh, jazz. It would just be about the notes. It was purely aesthetic, right? If, mm-hmm. if you kind of, you know, aesthetics versus politics or, you know, that kind of, you know, form versus content. So it, it wasn't really until I would say four, five years ago when the stuff started barreling forth, you know, right. and all of a sudden people were really curious about my perspective as a critic who wasn't white because I, apparently there's not very many of them. And <laughs> what my, uh, what I offered was interesting and unique and something that people wanted to hear all of a sudden. And so that's essentially the beginnings of writing articles about cancel culture or representation or inclusion or, you know, Oscar so white or, you know, yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, it's it's fairly new uh, it, to, to me. This mainstream conversation about inclusion—it's only five five or six years old. And how do you feel like it's come into your writing? It's been recent, or it's something you've always felt but you hadn't applied to your articles. I would just list all of my favorite directors, and I was I wouldn't be aware that they're they tend to be white men. You know, be like, oh, T. T. Anderson, Wes Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg. You know. 
mm-hmm. Coppola. You know, and it was about the the statements they made using their art. It wasn't about who they were or their perspectives. You know, they mm-hmm. are. But 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 then I think mainstream films started to get a lot more challenging and a lot more interesting where you have people like Jordan Peele and Barry Jenkins and, and, and really interesting female feminist filmmakers started coming about. So to me, it was a response, you know, this kind of wokeness, this wokening mm-hmm. of art. And for me, to me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm simply following where we all are in terms of thinking about art. And all of a sudden I started noticing, Hey, can we talk about The Last Samurai starring Tom Cruise, that movie set in Japan about Japanese people? Why is that necessary? Can we think about it in a critical sense? And can we just even talk about it? We don't need to say, screw this, screw you, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, didn't have to, we don't have to be as combative as the way we, we have been with like, you know, Scarlett Johansson and you know, Emma Stone with the whole yellow face and everything. It, to, to me, in the beginning, it was just simply asking the right questions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How much of it do you feel nowadays? Do you feel like it's used as a another promotional tool or to get negative or positive attention for a film? Or do you think it's a genuine a movement or concern? I would say amongst certain producers, they are very conscious and they put it at the top of the press releases. They're like, oh, this XYZ filmmaker, really like using the identity of the creators and the artists as a selling point. Sometimes it's a little bit hidden where you know it's it's arriving at a certain time where it's kind of perfect. Like Netflix has a lot of now after Crazy Rich Asians, there's there's more romantic comedies and romantic movies starring people of color, right? I just saw the new trailer for the Ali Wong vehicle. Um mm something something maybe you know i think just this weekend there's a movie the sun is also a star which is very exciting because it's about uh african-american female with an asian male which mm-hmm. is i i'm dating i'm in a relationship like that so I, I don't see a lot of representation of asian men with black black women mm-hmm. so that's very exciting and so, so it seems to me that from the people of color there is a hidden acknowledgement that oh we finally got to make the movies that we wanted to do without always being super explicit. And, you know, like, I feel like Jordan Peele wasn't super explicit, and then he had that interview where he's like, look, we've seen that movie about the white guy, or, you know, whatever. I'm making my own movies. And so it's not necessarily a response to what he's upset about. It's more of just, this is what he has wanted and hasn't been uh, able to do for a while. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a combination to, to, to me of, of spoken and unspoken change. Yeah, and the demographics. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Getting into your article, what inspired you to write about Miss Saigon and and Butterfly and and kind of wrap this around that? Theater and opera has been part of my purview Mm -hmm. uh, for a while. So this kind of story is age old. It's uh, come up several times. Uh, Madama Butterfly has been protested. Miss Saigon has been protested. The Mikado, which is probably the most offensive of them all, has been protested. And so when I saw that all these productions were coming up, I'm like, whoa, we need to talk about it. It would be irresponsible not to even just ask the questions, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm trying to reconcile this with this idea that there is a portion of perhaps the left that is somewhat ideological, somewhat militant, and perhaps driven more by checking boxes 
and if something, whether or not something is perfect, rather than viewing art through a really complicated lens, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's just so many ways to criticize everything because it's not woke enough or not XYZ enough. So I wanted to figure out if there was a middle path where we don't have to simply cancel something because canceling something is very binary, mm-hmm. which is not interesting. Just saying no to something is, is not, to me, how we should be consuming art right now. I think the way we should be consuming art is really complicated and really generous to all points of view, but including points of view that you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I wanted to do with my article, which is you know about two fairly problematic, quote-unquote problematic works of art written by old white men very long time ago that features women and Asian women as kind of like toys or sex objects or plot devices. And we should talk about how we engage with art like that. To take a quote from Wade's article, the idea of canceling is that it is not enough just to call out an artist for his or her behavior, but to attempt to deny their success in the mainstream. That's a malicious attack on my character. That's an attack to end me. What kind of response did, did people comment and did they talk about the article? What was like your feedback from it? There's always fairly conservative newspaper readers who write me. Mm-hmm. And generally, they, they say that I got it wrong mm-hmm. and that I am fairly biased or emotional and I'm not being a responsible critic by simply looking at how beautiful the music is. I get some of this. <laughs> These are kind of like the purists, the aesthetic purists. Right. Where you kind of have to turn off your brain, don't look at anything that, that, that you know, bothers people or offends people, and just look, view it as a classic, and classics simply must be worshipped. You know? mm-hmm. So there is some kind of this thought within the Houston Chronicle readership, but there are also other people who thank me, and they say, oh, I've been thinking about this for a really long time, but no one's really talked about it in a really mainstream way. Right? Having you know the the, the main uh, theater critic for the large newspaper here in Houston acknowledge it and have this be the main uh, angle of coverage. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's both. It's it's kind of partisan, <laughs> if I should say. say right. That. <laughs> when you look at the media landscape in the comments, um, do you do you feel like there's there's people trying to exist through them, like just an ego sense or a, a concern with with the topics, with what's going on? I mean, I, I could kind of answer your question thinking about Twitter, where Twitter is this world where, yeah, I mean, if you exist by way of being the most angry about the most things, it's, it's really weird because I feel like cancel culture comes from a place that isn't really aware of stuff like Madama Butterfly because it's the, the world of Twitter, you know, ha- tweet, tweeting hashtags about Asian American culture and, and black culture is a different world than the people who subscribe to operas. Mm-hmm. It's different generation, different racial makeup. And so people don't really have Twitter activism related to theater and opera. Not really. Mm-hmm. That's not where the conversation occurs. The conversation right now still occurs through newspaper or, you know, through, through kind of old, more kind of legacy forms of communication. So that's mm-hmm. another clash with cancel culture. It's not necessary. It's not just about clashing of ideology, aesthetics, just politics. It's about the clashing of 
generational forms of communi- communication mm-hmm. and how our ideas of what is true or what is what most people think, how we form those things based off of you know, Twitter or just church, right? Or newspapers or something like that. I'm just like wondering what's, you know, ego versus real concern out there. I don't think there is an actual big problem of, oh no, someone wrote something on the internet that I don't agree with. This is a big issue. Yeah, I I think there, yeah, I think there is a lot of ego of how dare this person tell me how to, that I'm wrong for liking this. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of, if one perspective challenges your perspective, I think right now we're at a culture where it's it's just really hard to be open to different perspectives. Right. We we're just. It, it, I think I think this goes beyond the arts. I think this is just our politics in general. It's just really hard to have that kind of across the aisle, so to speak, conversation. Where yeah. you're Like, hey, I see why you would love this opera. I that's cool, but I also don't you know, agree with it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Generally, the people who don't like it, they're like, screw this, cancel this, this is offensive, this is sexist, this is, we need to just cancel opera as a whole. Opera just doesn't need to exist, it needs to just die out, versus, oh, how dare you, you know, this is such a great art form and it doesn't need to be changed. Generally, I I hear fairly polarized reactions to these kind of things, and not a lot of stuff in the middle or even considering to try try to be in the middle. Right. It seems like there's a bit of, if you're not um, adamantly against something, then you're, then the other side might say you're for it. I see that happening a little bit here and there. Yeah. You're like, Oh, you're kind of supporting it. Yeah. Well, if you don't bash it and say, I hate this and I'm going to say, I hate this all day on my socials, then you're secretly for it or they come after you if you're non-active that way. Isn't it so toxic? Yes. Isn't it so broken? It's loud. It's very loud. That's why I think it's interesting. <sighs> you know, I was listening to um, Ezra Klein's podcast on, on Vox, and he uh-huh. talked about how he likes podcasting, because when we're podcasting, we can talk like people, and we can say things, and we can make mistakes, and I can say something that would be completely destroyed on Twitter if it was a tweet. Yes. But on a podcast, it emulates conversation, so when we listen, we kind of emulate the empathy that's required of conversation. Absolutely. So, so I'm thinking maybe podcasts are a lot better Yeah, I think yeah. preventing this kind of outrage culture. Yeah, I've been in so many fights just because of a lazy tweet, or not right. a lazy tweet, a lazy text. Where they'll think I said mm-hmm. something or meant something or the caps were on or something I was yelling. It's just mm-hmm. interesting if they could just hear the tone or just the nuance of conversation. What are your thoughts of canceling content versus canceling a person? Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of canceling content, I think as a consumer, you can just choose not to support something. I think that's the same thing as canceling a person. Like if a piece of art or a person has traits in which you do not support them for moral or ethical reasons, you as a consumer should not support it. The question is, do you get to tell other people how to consume as well? You know, mm-hmm. I think, I think what, the, I think what there's a person it's, it's, there's this effect of, I don't want R Kelly or I don't want Bill Cosby to make any more money because when he makes that money, this supports a system in which people are being abused and you are, somewhat helping perpetrate that abuse. Mm-hmm. So I can understand to cancel something like that 
you know, the dollar speaks loudest, you know, can't right. say something like Madama Butterfly. It's not, not, no one is really necessarily being hurt outside of the art form. It, it's a little, it's slightly more abstract than something like abuse or rape or, 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 or something like that. Right. Sure. It's, it's within the realm of art and not just with, and not like a workplace concern. So it's a little different because a lot of people say that, Madama Butterfly, Miss Saigon, provides a lot of good job opportunity for Asian American performers because there's real, like these are the Asian, you know, musical mm-hmm. theater pieces and the operas. There are there isn't an alternative in terms of finding a job as an Asian opera singer or musical theater performer. You know, Leah Salonga and Eva Noblezada became famous through Miss Saigon. Right. So. So, so, so canceling something like that to me is a little bit more complicated than canceling, you know, reruns of the Cosby show or something like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Where do you, where do you think the net effect is of it? Where do you, where do you see this going, this moment in time? Yeah. You know, you know, I don't know because on one hand we're having this conversation. Yes. A lot of people are having this conversation. This conversation seems to grow. On the other hand, Miss Saigon sold out was Tony nominated and is now on a countrywide tour. Mm-hmm. People still love it. Mm-hmm. So maybe this conversation that we're having is, is this is like a bubble effect, right? Mm-hmm. Where just everyday Americans or just everyday ticket buyers don't really care about this. Mm-hmm. I, was listening to a, I was listening to a podcast about um, Game of Thrones and people are wondering, maybe people all love Game of Thrones, that the majority of the millions of viewers think this is an incredible show. And there's just the bubble effect where the most amplified criticism is just on the internet. It's very hard to really know for sure. Uh, Madame Butterfly, I overheard someone say, oh my God, this is incredible. It's beautiful. Absolutely terrific. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know. I think within those worlds, within the opera world, they have a lot of these yes people, yes men and fans, sure. telling them to keep on going. So... I don't know. I mean, does anyone sympathize me when I say I feel like my idea of truth and reality sometimes is totally fractured? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't really know what's what's going on. On one hand, I feel like the change is coming, the revolution is coming. Sure. You know. On the other hand, oh man, maybe I'm not talking to enough people mm-hmm. to really know what's going on in the culture because maybe people don't give a shit. You know. Right. Yeah. I just I want to take time to thank you for being on an episode of the Love Show. It means a lot to us. And I guess would you tell people how they could find you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter. Twitter's probably the best way. My name is Wei Huan Chen, so it's my name. So it's at W E I H U A N C H E N. Thank you. And what are you working on now? I am doing a story about diversity numbers in Houston theater looking at if theater companies are producing more women and more people of color, which they some seem to be doing. So mm. seems to be, yeah, progress is very slow. It's very crawling, but it is happening, and people are talking about it. We're going to have to read your next article. Oh, and, and, and I, uh, I, I talked to uh, Hannah Gadsby, uh-huh. the, the, the comedian. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. Amazing interview. And, and, and she's kind of representative of this kind of change uh, within the comedy world. And so, yeah, so, so uh, she's stopping by Houston and so we got a comedy interview coming up too oh great thank you so much and we'll talk soon
tell me a little bit about, you know, your experience with cancel culture. When did you start noticing it and seeing it in, in the landscape? You know, what were things that popped out to you? I think that obviously in the last two years, we've had kind of these really watershed cultural moments where um, people have kind of come forward and mass to make accusations against people who I guess formally felt untouchable. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that is probably when I first noticed it as like sort of, um, I guess a large part of the cultural conversation or a large part of the dynamic, I think probably to a lesser extent, the idea of cancel culture has always existed. Um, I just think that in the era of social media, um, when things are so interconnected and also like in the era of receipts, right. Where people are keeping their, you know, conversations with people just in case, like what's happening with like these beauty influencers now with like that whole James Charles situation and Jeffree Star and that other one that's like, these people are making 40 to 50 minute videos where they're, you know, disclosing personal conversations that they've had with people that they've recorded or like, Saved via text message. I knew this would cause a lot of controversy. I, I know that. Um, but I didn't think it would get to this magnitude. I didn't think it was possible. And I want to share with you guys that I do really want the hate to stop. I want the picking sides and the abusive memes and the language and all of that. I really hope on both sides it can stop. That's not why I made the video. So I think that we're also like living in a time where people feel like they need to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so I I don't know. Yeah, I would say maybe like in the last five to seven years, I've kind of just noticed he or she is canceled has really become a thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you feel like you're conscious of it when you're writing an article? Or are you concerned with like people coming or do you care about the comments or feedback? I mean, I do care about understanding perspectives that I may have overlooked or like misunderstood or like misspoken on because I think that, I mean, I'm not, you know, omniscient. I don't know everything. I can easily get things wrong, but I think when you get things wrong, it's considering where the mistake came from and the intention behind the mistake, right? There are situations in which people might misspeak or might sort of say the wrong thing or even on a platform like Twitter, you know, right. where you have very sort of abbreviated conversation. It's really easy to make a misstep, right? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that someone is a bad person or that they are like seeking to do damage, right? right. There's a difference between that and sort of consciously doing something that is harmful and knowing that you're doing something that's harmful and, and just hoping no one finds out about it because you don't want to be held accountable for your behavior. And I think the problem is that there's like a lot of nuance around like deciding whether you're going to permanently ruin someone's life or not. And because sometimes we tend to have a little bit of a mob mentality or because the way that information is proliferated, the average person doesn't really know how to do a thorough fact check. Right. Or to make sure that they have all of the information before they cancel someone. And I think that's where it sometimes goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Just not appreciating sort of the nuance around it. Because it's ultimately, it's not a bad thing. Like, what it means is that large groups of people are able to mobilize and say that, you know, you might be in a position of power, but this is unacceptable. And right. this one person by themselves 
might not be able to hold you accountable, but all of us together can hold you accountable. Mm-hmm. What um what brought you to your interest in Doja Cat? What what was it something that drew you to cover? Honestly, I just had been a fan for a while, and I I always thought it was really interesting that she it never felt like she quite made it beyond the SoundCloud bubble, and I always wondered why. And then she had that super viral song <laughs> that right. kind of came out of nowhere, and I thought the music video was really great and clever as well. Um, and so when I saw kind of people coming after her, um, I understood both perspectives, but I'm like in the sort of grand scheme of things. And it's certainly not my job to say like who deserves to be canceled or canceled or not, but I'm in the grand scheme of things, like her sort of offenses, um, and the way that she took accountability for them, um, it, it felt a lot more sincere and it seemed a lot less damaging than some of the other things that we've seen. And some of these people are, are, you know, like operating with impunity still and, and people are not chasing them with pitchforks. So it was more of a like, <laughs> what's, what's the difference between her and this other guy who, you know, gets leeway? Like, why does she not, you know? Right. And I think that's kind of what interested. And also too, it's like, with artists like that, um, I don't know. I, I just feel like, unfortunately, too, a lot of times our online footprint, it, it it stays forever, but there's no way to sort of record how someone has grown as a person right. since something that they tweeted five to seven years ago. Like, there's, yes, the record of what they said is there, but there's no online footprint of, like, you know, maybe this person finally got some queer friends in their life and they kind of, you know, like learned a lot through that and no longer, you know, have these harmful ways of thinking. We don't know that. Right. And I don't know how how we can tell. Right. Digging deeper into your article, you had a lot of great things to say about, you know, being compassionate about canceling a person. I mean, can you get into that a little bit? I mean, I, I think obviously, again, the idea of compassion one has to think about the sort of the damage that was done if the person did damage and also the intention. But for the most part, for someone like her, I would advocate compassion, right? Because like even her sort of initial tweets to me, they, they kind of massive like a lack of education, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when people make certain comments or they say certain things and they are either trying to be funny or just saying really, you know, offhand things online, a lot of it comes from just a lack of either lived experiences or like being around the people that they're sort of talking about. And Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes we have to understand if there's an opportunity to correct a person compassionately and say like, Hey, here's some crucial information that you're missing. And that's why you cannot say things like that. I think to me, in the long term, that is more beneficial for everyone than just being like, you're done. It's finished. You'll never have a career again. And I also think that when it comes to sort of like the idea of cancel culture, um, the reason why it's good for the most part, right, is that it gives people who are either underrepresented or marginalized the opportunity to sort of like level the playing field. And so like I would be more likely to advocate sort of compassion and 
the imparting of knowledge onto a person who might be part of a marginalized group who has done something to another person who's part of a marginalized group, right? Mm-hmm. I would advocate it for them more than just like canceling them because I think that like the idea, again, of canceling someone is sort of redistributing like power dynamics. Right. And I don't necessarily think that someone like Doja Cat is in a position of power, right? Like Mm -hmm. she is an independent female artist of color um, working in an industry that's pretty male dominated. And this is not Kanye West that we're talking about. Right. So I think in a case like hers, it's fair to say like, why, why do we not try to, you know, maybe talk to this person first before just being like, nah, yeah, you're done. Deading it. Do you feel like cancel culture is productive in a sense? I do think that it can be productive. I think again, where the issue comes in is the lack of nuance and like sometimes context. Right. So it's like in order for something like cancel culture to sort of be its most effective, it would require also a large group of people to engage with critical thinking Mm -hmm. on a mass scale. And again, you know, like the the fact of the matter is that a lot of people, when they're rushing to cancel people, they're not thinking about why they're doing it. They're not thinking about how it makes sense. It just, sometimes it just, you know, some people, it just feels good to pile on to other people. Like again, with this whole YouTube beauty guru drama if you look at the actual social sentiment and like a lot of the comments around what's happening it's not people who have like sat down and actually watched these videos or gone back to fact check themselves they're just people who either like james charles or don't like him or people who like jeffree star or don't like him and they're just kind of delighted to see somebody that they either don't like you know being humbled or delighted to see somebody that they like humbling someone that they don't like. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where it becomes dangerous. But as, as a concept, I think it's a good thing. And I think it's a powerful and necessary thing because it, it does sort of even the playing field a little bit sometimes. What I really liked about Stephanie's article was her exploration of compassion in the topic. In her own words, she said, Of course it's disappointing when someone we've come to admire or whose talent has enriched our lives shows us that their actions don't necessarily align with our personal beliefs. But it is also important to be mindful that these same individuals are undergoing their own process of growth and learning, just in a vastly more public setting. What do you think of an apology? What kind of apology is enough? I think it really depends when we're talking about sort of the dynamics of power, right? Take someone like a Harvey Weinstein who kind of knew for years and years and years and years and years that he was probably misusing trust and power that people had in him and also just had so much leverage that even the people directly around him who knew that things were happening that weren't appropriate, like they were afraid to say anything. I don't think someone like that can really apologize Mm -hmm. because it wasn't like I didn't know any better. It wasn't, I'm hoping to learn from this. This was someone who just didn't care. Right. um, And was not thinking about sort of the damage that he was causing to other people was not thinking about sort of even like the psychological trauma of knowing that you're sort of by proxy engaging in something that's destroying other people and, being in a position where you're like, am I going to lose my job if I say something? How do I say something? I can't talk. Like, there's a lot of 
things and people that those kinds of behaviors touch outside of the actual people who were assaulted or harassed by him, right? Yes. I don't think you can apologize for something like that after you've been caught, right? Because at that point, you're not apologizing because you feel bad or you have any kind of remorse. You're apologizing because you've been caught. Right. And your whole world is falling apart. Absolutely. There's a difference between something like that and someone like a, for instance, a Doja Cat or even like Brother Nature, you know, like when people unveiled his old tweets from when he was like 12 or 13 and he was saying some really questionable things. It's like seeing the person who he is now, who has built an entire brand around loving animals and being positive. It's hard to believe that that's the same kid, you know, right. like there's, there's, there's a trail of evidence that would indicate that this person has either grown up, been sort of re-educated, or was just like a 12-year-old who was online trying to be an edgelord, and it came back and bit him in the ass, right? Like, yeah. there's, there's differences. So I think it, it depends on the situation, the person, what the actual dynamics of power look like, and all of those things, I think, need to be considered. I think that's true. What are you working on now? Uh, we loved your article, by the way. Oh, thank you. I finished a, a feature story with 21 Savage that I'm excited about, so I hope that people like that. And then I actually just came back from doing an interview because I'm doing a story for ID about how black people are more open to Botox and filler uh-huh. these days. And I was kind of like curious about when that sort of <laughs> when that shift happened and attitude happened and why. Where can our listeners find you? Well, I have a Twitter mm-hmm. um, that is Persephone, which is P-E-R-S-T-E-P-H-O-N-3. Mm-hmm. I would say Twitter is probably the best place to find my writing and the opinions that no one asks for that I sometimes have. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It means a lot, and we really liked your article. Uh, well, thank you for having me. We'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the matter. You can always find us at patreon.com slash patrickholic. I'd like to thank my engineer on this episode, Brooke Jenkins. Thank you. She did a lot to aggregate these articles and find these people and set up so much technology. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Love Show with Patrick Hollick. So I'm going to have to like, subscribe, and rate your podcast. Oh, great. Get it to the top charts. Better be good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)